This is the Wicked Problems in Circular Systems podcast. I'm your host, Chris Hostreich. Today I'm sitting down with Katie Sipp. She's a contributor to WPC Book 2. Before we jump into that, Katie, could you go ahead and introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. I'm Katie Sipp. I'm a U.S.-based consultant who has been an organizer for about 30 years, and I mostly do work with groups that are working on economic justice issues and migrant rights. Let's go on to the book. Your chapter in there is quite unique, set against all the rest of them. Could could you just give us a 50,000-foot view of what you did there and what you were trying to achieve with the reader? Yeah. So just to give a little context, I think I, I was writing this chapter probably two months into the hard lockdown. And I live in, in New Jersey in the U.S., which is a state that took the pandemic pretty seriously from the beginning. We were also one of the states that was very hard hit right at the beginning. Our governor, unlike some other U.S. politicians, was very serious about shutting down the schools, shutting down government. I was thinking about it last night when I was driving around. A year ago, there wasn't traffic on the road. It was just everyone kind of sitting still in their house. And so I was really just kind of like, well, what would it be like if we just sort of took this as a moment for a hard reset of the way that American society has evolved over the last 200 plus years and said, we have all of these systems that are kind of a hodgepodge. What if we, instead of having a hodgepodge of kind of cobbled together systems that create the environment in which we work and live, we took a really serious look at them, tore some of them down, made some different decisions. And just what would that look like at the end? Not what would it look like to go through that process, but what would it look like if we came out of it with a much sort of healthier world for humans to live in and for us to live in in conjunction with other animals and plants in our environment? It's a lovely thought. At the same time, I was finishing up my last book, Pandemic Capitalism, which took a look at the the circumstances that we're in in the moment and more broadly, the trends in capitalism. And at the time, you had that reaction from the government in the Northeast where they really took it seriously and the trends were going in a good direction. And I was trying to get my book out quickly because I was afraid the pandemic might be over and out of people's minds before I even published the book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But um, I guess I could have <laughs> taken a little more know. time with that one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Right. Well, I mean, I think to some degree, too, I mean, I, in my like work life, had been in this process because of the work that I, the kind of work that I do work with a lot of the people who had been impacted by being forced to like still go to work when other mm-hmm. people weren't being forced to go to work because yeah. they were, quote, essential unquote, workers, and people in the U.S. who are undocumented, who were ineligible for many of the programs that the U.S. government was passing to make Mm -hmm. sure that people were economically cared for during the pandemic. And, you know, I mean, like, we can all say what the government did wasn't enough for us, quote unquote, you know, the citizens of the United States, but what it did for people who were living here, doing important work that Mm -hmm. is actually required to keep our society functioning was basically nothing. And so I had spent the better part of two months organizing, fundraising around trying to help people have, you know, just money to be able to pay their bills who were undocumented. They weren't getting access to the pandemic relief, et cetera. And also doing a lot of organizing with particularly migrant workers who were who were working in factories that weren't adopting safety precautions, weren't providing PPE, et cetera. 
So it also just felt like we're in this moment where there's this very clear divide about like who's worth protecting and who's yeah. not worth protecting in the US. And I was like, well, what if we just thought about that entire concept differently and said everybody is worth protecting? Yeah, absolutely. Well, well, thank you for doing that fundraising. That's wonderful. Really, really cool that you did that. One of the topics I brought up in my book was the idea of a essential worker. The people on Wall Street were sent home and you had these people who were making non-living wages being forced to work or not be paid really gave me pause and thought that's a thing people really ought to be taking a moment to think about because what really drives society and, and keeps us afloat and what doesn't became very clear then. And I think that was, to me, one of the reasons that a lot of state governments did not go down the same path because that was highlighted. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's right. Let's talk about some of your work. You were recently involved, you said, in, in Pennsylvania electoral politics, and you, you said they had an interesting approach to that election. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Like I said at the beginning, I've been an organizer for about 30 years. I've worked in and around Pennsylvania for about the last 20 years. And so one of my projects that I work on is working with grassroots groups. So basically base building groups that are working on winning electoral victories, as well as sort of tactic in larger issue campaigns. So if you want to raise the minimum wage and you have a legislature that is opposed to doing that and go and yell at the legislators that are trying or that are refusing to raise the minimum wage <laughs> for a long time, or you can also try to elect a new legislator that will be pro the minimum wage. And so I think just one thing that's a super interesting thing that happened in Pennsylvania this year although it is the culmination, again, of a like multi-year campaign that has been going on for decades in Pittsburgh to organize the Black community, but really took kind of like heightened step forward after the Pittsburgh police shot a Black teenager to death in 2018, a young man named Antoine Rose. And so there is a sort of table of different, mostly Black-led organizations in Pittsburgh that decided this year that they were going to do a sort of collaborative approach to changing the face of who's in power in Pittsburgh by running by doing issue-based organizing and particularly mm -hmm. issue-based organizing around the issue of police reform and cr criminal justice reform more you know to the point so there was a, a group in Pittsburgh that for example decided you know the lane that we're going to play in this election is not going to be to attack the incumbent mayor or to you know support a challenger to that mayor, what we're going to do is we're going to put some stuff on the ballot that we think will help people turn out. And also will fundamentally, if it passes, these ballot measures independently on their own also do good things. So for the first one they put on the ballot was a piece of legislation to ban the practice of no-knock warrants in the city of Pittsburgh, aka Breonna Taylor's law. Right. And then they also put on a ballot measure that was in the county that Pittsburgh is in, Allegheny County. And that was to basically close down the solitary confinement unit in the Allegheny County Jail, which is a solitary confinement unit that has a history of human rights abuses. And I mean, this is the jail where you go, where you, you can't pay your bail and you're waiting for trial. And there are people that have been in that solitary confinement unit for three years in what's supposed to be kind of a temporary holding situation. Wow. And so there was a set of groups that was working on passing this ballot, these ballot measures. Some of those folks also worked to elect a slate. We have Weird situation in Pennsylvania where basically every judge in Pennsylvania is elected. And so 
you're constantly in election years having these like giant imagine if where you live every mm-hmm. municipal court judge was on the ballot you don't know wow. how many municipal court judges there are because you don't have to vote for them sure but in pennsylvania you know you'll have these like <laughs> there's 20 people 30 people running for seats where you get to vote for 10 and so lots of voters are like i have no idea how to pick judges i don't know what to so another group in the black organizations at pittsburgh was like we're gonna run a slate of judges that are reformed judges and mm-hmm. they ran this slate called the slate of eight And really, again, we're like working together to highlight the issue of criminal justice reform and how it's it's a local issue, right? We can talk about Biden and the various federal bills to change the way that policing is, but police are controlled by mayors and by city councils. And so Mm -hmm. having a conversation about criminal justice reform at the local level, I think really engages people in what's important in that local election. And then last but not least, there was another sort of collection of groups in Pittsburgh that were doing work around the mayor's race. And the incumbent mayor, Bill Peduto, has been pretty bad, honestly, on the issues of criminal justice reform and policing. And particularly after last year, obviously, the other thing that happened in the U.S. last year was the huge movement around the George Floyd shooting and the other shootings that happened last year that were less high profile, but still tragic. And so Peduto had put his foot in it in the moment during last summer when there were lots of folks rising up and protesting the oppressive force of the police in the black community. And so a state rep in Pittsburgh, who is an incumbent in the state legislature, decided that he was going to run. And so there were also like kind of a group of organizations that were explicitly supporting him. And he is a black man who will now likely now be the first black mayor of Pittsburgh. I work with a lot of organizations that do electoral work as a part of, as I said, as a part of their grassroots tactics package. And to me, this is just interesting because it is really a group of organizations all saying, we're going to attack this problem from a different way. We're not all going to do the same thing. But we are all sort of coordinating around a broader goal, which is to build a vision of a city that works for its residents and that isn't killing people for the crime of having a cell phone in public, holding a toy gun, being asleep in your own bed, sitting on your own couch watching TV, all of the things that we've seen happen to Black Americans over the last, well, really since this country was founded, have become much more obvious in the social media era. Really, really cool. It will probably sound like something out of left field, but I do a lot of work with circular economy and recycling, and we do a lot of systems thinking work around that. And so we're we're constantly looking for different ways to get people not just aware and having the desire to change their behavior to actually pull the string where they actually make those changes. And it's really interesting when you look at it that if you if you go at a community with where you're trying to encourage everyone to do the same thing with the exact same story or the, the exact same trigger, right. depending on which one you, you get, you might get more or less of the community, but you almost never get anywhere close to the rate of change that you're looking for with just that one thing. But um, sometimes we, we see, you know, you get three or four different approaches that are pulling people in different directions or from different directions towards the thing you want. And you get that. And one of the interesting ones, one of my colleagues has been running here in in Bangkok is a recycling program that rewards people not with direct financial compensation, but with lottery tickets, uh, which you mm-hmm. probably sounds silly, but some people aren't excited about getting a small uh, cash compensation for recycling. Right. The opportunity to win something more, they're like, oh yeah, sure, I'll do that. 
And, you know, it's just a different way of approaching it rather than trying to get everyone with the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I think it's, it's a really important, I mean, we are all individuals and Mm -hmm. we're motivated by different things. In addition to that, you know, we all have family members that are, that are motivated by different things and friends that are motivated by different things. And, and some of, I think what happens in those situations is that like, your sister might be yelling at you about you have to go and like vote for the for this person for mayor and your mm-hmm. grandma is like okay but you also have to go and vote for these you know ballot measures and mm-hmm. then your next door neighbor is like well i really want you to you know support my friend who's running for judge yeah it it like creates this just kind of like sense that everyone in the community is kind of moving towards the same direction even if they're not all taking the same road yeah yeah, if you if you've got people talking about all those different things in your community and you're getting hit over and over and over, there's probably a feeling of hope that hey, maybe these things can actually go, and that I mean that's got to be a good feeling. Yeah, let's uh, jump onto one one more topic before we go. I want you to to share a little bit about the Pro Act. I know that's something you deal with, and I think it could be beneficial to for the listeners to to learn a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, so I, again, like I said, I I work kind of in the intersection of of uh, economic justice and migrant rights, and one of the things that's happening in the U.S. right now is that there is a piece of legislation that has passed the U.S. House and is now moved over into the Senate that would essentially add people to to be covered by U.S. labor law who have mm-hmm. historically not been covered by U.S. labor law. So. You know, if you look back nearly a hundred years to the 1930s when the National Labor Relations Act was created, there was a political compromise that was struck between, you know, sort of leaders in the North who were being highly pressured by worker movements in the industrial that were in the industrialized what were then the industrialized parts of the country that where the factory, you know, sort of production was happening. They were getting pressured by workers and by uh, you know, worker fights, really strikes and big, uh, you know, kind of concerted activities to pass labor law to to create a container for, you know, those unions to basically have bargaining power with their employers. And so when the NLRA passed, I mean, it, what it was really designed to do was to provide kind of an organizing container for workers who, for the most part, worked in the same place in a big building for the same employer. Essentially, we set up the labor law for the United States in a way that met the needs of the economy at the time, but also really met the needs of certain number of American workers who largely were white men. And there was a political compromise with elected leaders in the South that left out a lot of the jobs that were at that point available to particularly Black Americans and immigrants. So things like Farm labor was excluded from the act. Things like domestic work was excluded from the act. And things like what we now call gig work was excluded. There's been a conversa- a lot of conversation in the U.S. about how the PRO Act is just about making it easier for workers to form unions. And that is true. And it's a good thing. But what it also would do is really fundamentally add some people back into being covered by labor law in the United States who aren't covered right now. So, for example, you've seen people have seen these big strikes that the Fight for 15 has been having. I mean, the Fight for 15 has been organizing with the demand of 15 and a union for nearly 10 years at this point. They just had a national strike in the U.S. yesterday with McDonald's workers going on strike. 
the part of the problem is that because almost all fast food workers are employed by franchises, franchise owners, as opposed to being directly employed by the corporation, something like 5% of McDonald's stores are actually owned by McDonald's. The rest are owned by franchise owners. And that means right now it is incredibly hard under U.S. labor law for those workers to organize. The PRO Act would mean that that McDonald's workers and other fast food workers and other workers who work in retail that are like franchised yeah. would have an easier time forming basically an organization that gives them the power to talk to their boss as if with the power of all of the workers, as opposed to just individual people going one-on-one -on -one to say, hey, you're fucking up my schedule. Can you change it? Mm -hmm. No, we should have the ability to sort of go as a group and say, we want to be able to partner with you to just figure out what the work schedule should be. We're mm -hmm. not trying to take over the workplace, but we want to have our needs met as well as the employer's needs met. Absolutely needed. I think it was Barry Estabrook's Tomato Land that I read several years ago about the abuses in the farming industry, the way, the way immigrant right. workers are treated and the hazards that they're exposed to. And it was just... That was probably one of the things that kind of put me on the path that I'm on now, where it was just like, I, I can't not work against those sorts of things once I, you know that they're out there. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I feel like that's, it's very hard to exist in a system of capitalism as an individual and not participate in it and not be sort of in some ways complicit in its worst excesses. Sure. And so to me, I'm just like, I know that I, I live as an American, live as an American. I own a car. I do these like things. I have to do as much as I can to kind of like overcome that on a systemic level, mm -hmm. in addition to things that I want to change on, on an individual level in my own life to give myself yeah. feel <laughs> so I can personally feel better about the impact that I'm making on the world. It's not just about changing my own consumerism, but also changing the system so that other people aren't subject to that. And and subject to the whims of individual consumers. Totally agreed. I mean, that's that's my purpose for writing really is to help people see yeah. that kind of stuff and hopefully have it lead towards positive change because just right. to sit on the sidelines, I can't do it. Uncomfortable. Cool. Yeah, totally. Well, Katie, thank you very much for making time for me. It's been really interesting. Yeah, thank I, you. I, I learned a lot and, and I, I appreciate you doing it. Thank you for contributing to the book and I wish you well. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the show. I hope it was interesting and that it helped you see something anew. As an independent press, we can use all the help we can get reaching new readers and listeners, so please do share this for us. Also, What Do We Do About the Pandemic will be available on July 4th, but if you're up for giving us a brief, honest review, you can pick up a free copy on BookSirens.com. Thanks again for listening. Eat supplied by Audio Binger.